So here we go. We're, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start there. We got a lot of other verses to cover. And I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm actually, don't judge me. I'm going to set a timer today. Um, okay. <laughs> and what you could do is once we hit 35 minutes, you know, 10 minutes left, five minutes left, wind it up. Whenever I started youth ministry, um, evidently, uh, whenever I'm teaching, I can speak very quickly. Um, my students used to tell me this. I would fly through a lot of material um, in the classroom. But then once I started doing youth ministry also, then Chas would actually stand at the back, and she's like, fast. And she would like give me these cues so that I would, and it was usually the slow down cue because um, I evidently can go quickly. So I've learned how to pace better. But um, I am saying all that to say this. We're going to cover the doctrine of baptism today. I have plenty of notes. I want to be mindful of time so that I would like for us to be properly equipped to understand why we do what we do. I need to hit start. I say I bought myself five minutes there. Um, but also, I want to just be mindful that, that you can also overkill something. And once you overkill, then, then the brain starts to shut down and then we miss this great opportunity to actually grasp it all here at the end. So with that said, that's why I'm setting a timer. Here's, here's why we're doing the doctrine of baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, which we're going to read again here in a second, we last week moved through Jesus being baptized. Like what all is going on in that scene whenever Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John resists, then John says, okay, so that it can, quote, fulfill all righteousness. And then the heavens open and the dove comes down and God the Father speaks. And then Jesus is standing there and then we get a picture of the Trinity. Like we walked all the way through that, that scene. But here's what I know also. We say a lot of things in churches that we just assume we all understand what we do and why we do it. We throw around, throw around words like justification, right? And, and propitiation. And like we just, and, and then we'll throw in stuff about the, um, what's one that, that might come up? We'll just say the easiest one, the gospel. Like, but we'll just assume everybody knows what we're talking about. And the reality is, across the board, there's at least people sitting there going, like, I know atonement's something I'm supposed to know, but what does that even mean? Baptism is something I'm supposed to know about, and I know that I was dunked, but like, why, why do we actually fully do it? So our heart as elders is to make sure, not that, that we know it, and that we get up and give a, an oral presentation every Sunday, but that we actually fulfill the equipping of the church, which is, trying to help believers know what they believe, why they believe it, and why we do what we do. And so I wanted to pause and approach the doctrine of baptism. Now, whenever I'm studying, if I'm studying for cross life, then I'm thinking in one mode. If, I'm, if I were invited to go do the same topic um, down, down at Fort Smith Fellowship, then I would approach it differently. Um, we are the... We're the elders, the shepherds of the flock that God has given us. And so that means that we're always mindful as we're studying. And so as I look around the room and I see your faces, we also see your faces and know your names as we're studying. And so I'm looking around the room going, okay, I've got professing believers who most likely have been baptized, but what if they were to sit down with somebody and have a cup of coffee? Would they know where to take people? Would they know what to communicate? Would they know if someone says, well, 
Why do y'all dunk people? Do you, do you know why? Like what, that's, our, that's our goal. Um, and so that's why I want to do the doctrine of baptism. Next week is the doctrine of the Trinity. I foolishly thought I can do these two things in one sermon. And then I began writing um, on baptism, knowing I was intentionally going to have to limit both. And then the Lord, I, you know, sometimes you just hear him audibly, and it's not like he laughs at you. Um, it was kind of that moment where God's like, you're not doing both of them in one sermon. So here we are. We're going to do baptism. We'll do Trinity next week. Here's what I'm going to ask on the Trinity, just like I did with baptism. If you have a question about the Trinity that you would like for me to try to address, then please text that to me. And I, in the course of the, the message, am going to do my best to answer those questions. Um, but that's a great mystery. And yes, there are examples out there. Like one that I might have is, or that I've, that I've moved through is, well, you know, you see the illustration of like water and ice and vapor. Like, is that a good illustration? That, that's it, right? Like, that's a good question because no, it's not a good illustration. It, it's close, but it's not. One of the best illustrations was given to me by Jackson the other night, and you're going to have to show up next week to see what that illustration was. Okay, so send me whatever question you have, and I will do my best to answer it so that you are properly equipped. And it may be that you ask me, and I go, I don't know. And I'm going to try and answer those baptism questions today. All that said, I'm going to be moving quicker, um, but I'll try to find a way for us to do that. So here we go. The doctrine of baptism. That's the context for today. Matthew chapter 3. Here is why we're launching into it. Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need, not, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So then, just right now for our equipping, what do we need to know today about baptism? Like, where do we get this doctrine? What do you need to know so that as you disciple someone, you can answer some of these questions? That's, that's what I'm hoping. The first thing we're going to do is just move through a lot of Scripture. I tried to structure it in such a way that if you will start in Matthew where you are, then we're just going to keep flipping right. That'll help us to save time instead of going back and forth. All right, so here we go. Go to Matthew then. So these are, I've got about 12 passages that I want us to move through very quickly. If at the end you're like, oh, he only covered nine, it's because I'm trying to be conscientious of time so I can answer questions later. This will probably be my speed of speaking um, so always remember that like my notes are fully available, you just say, hey, can you send that to me and I will send you the, the document. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Our, our uh, pattern will be, read the passage, what do we see here? Read the passage, what do we see? Read the passage, what do we see? Moving through about 12 verses in that way. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the, to the end of the age. So what do we see here? That the Great Commission, which is the great command or the great mission that we've all been sent on, includes going and teaching and baptizing. Right? You know what? 
as we go, baptism is an important aspect of our faith. Like, it's not just like some secondary thing. It's an integral thing about, about what we do. Okay? See, and it's going to go like this. Now I'm in Mark chapter 1. So we're just little notes. Now some of these we're going to hit, and they're going to require more conversation. Mark chapter 1. These are our warm-ups. Just priming the lawnmower before we start to actually mow. Just some comfortable ones for us. Very familiar. Mark 1, 4 says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What do we see? That John the Baptist's ministry at the beginning of the New Testament really placed an emphasis on baptism. It is important. Like That's what I'm going to keep saying here at the beginning. Baptism is mentioned so much because it's incredibly important for us to consider. It is not of utmost importance, it's just incredibly important. Mark 1.8 says, John... The Baptist is speaking. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is really important to know that, that John fully acknowledges that his baptism is for the washing away of sins. It's symbolic of the removal of sins. But then he says, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying that Jesus' baptism, the new baptism that's coming, is new and better in this, is that Jesus' baptism is not just of water, it is a spiritual renewal as well. And so, if I were to get baptized right now, I am physically, yes, being immersed in water. I'm being, and that's, you know, your sins are washed away. Absolutely. But there is something that actually happens internally within us because we're acting in obedience and God is glorified in that action of obedience. So it's a spiritual renewal. We're going to get to the symbolism here in just a little bit. Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth came from Gal- I'm sorry, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, "You are my beloved Son; with you I am well pleased." Two main things that I see here: number one, when Jesus quote came up out of the water, implies that Jesus went down into the water, right? So there is already this implication that immersion is what's happened, and we will see that both in language and history, immersion is the typical um, practice, and it's the one that I hold to the most. I'm going to talk about that here in a little while. Um, we also see this, that Jesus' baptism fully pleased God the Father. That's incredibly important for you and me. It, it fulfills so much, but again, baptism is an essential part of our walk in faith and an authentic, authentication of our salvation. Those who say, I believe, and yet never are baptized, this is something where we, I'm praying the Lord convicts us of this. I'm going to cover, can you believe and not be baptized and still be saved? Absolutely. We're going to hear that as we move into some of our other verses in just a moment. Look at Mark 16, 16. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, This is a great verse with what I was just talking about. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But now watch this. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So what do we see? Same pattern over and over throughout the New Testament. Belief and baptism go hand in hand. When we believe, we, are bapt- we want to be baptized. Like that's a, that's a follow through for us. But I want you to see this next part. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so not being baptized does not disqualify someone's salvation. You need to understand that. Not being baptized does not disqualify their salvation. 
Look, for example, the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross believes, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the thief was not able to be baptized, yet we know that he is in heaven. Someone may be on their deathbed, and they become a believer at that moment, but they don't have an opportunity to, to be baptized. Well, by God's grace, they are saved because they believe. So belief is of utmost importance. Baptism, baptism is just our next act of obedience. So not being baptized does not disqualify someone's salvation. So get this, belief is essential. And biblically speaking, belief will be followed by baptism, but faith alone saves. Right? So if you're in that moment and you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you believe in your heart, you profess with your mouth, and you know that He is Lord and Savior, that is enough. But what happens is whenever that belief really takes root, and your question is, well, what do I do? You're baptized. It's okay. Like you want to follow through with baptism. But I want you to understand that it says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Not whoever does, whoever believes but is not baptized, they are condemned. Not whoever um, does not believe and is baptized is not condemned. Just whoever does not believe, they're the ones condemned. Okay, now moving on. I'm in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so Acts is basically the history of the church. So this is where we see the church being really born and and expanding. And so if you were to move through core doctrine, I think it's really important to look at Acts. What were they saying in Acts? What were they doing in Acts as the church is being born? What were they preaching? And in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who, um, and then 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's some church growth right there. Okay, so what do we see? In many passages throughout Acts and throughout the New Testament, um, we're going to see that a genuine response to the gospel is to repent and be baptized. You see it right there, repent and be baptized. What were their first sermons? Repent and be baptized. Y'all, the most timeless and relevant message for our world is not better analogies, better stories, but to, it's to remind people that there's a holy God and we need to repent to be baptized. So from the beginning of the church, repent and be baptized. All right, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Okay, so this is actually really important to, to our conversation. The pattern that we're going to see is that there is belief and then baptism. We call that believer's baptism. Like that's the phrase that gets thrown around in churches. We believe in believer's baptism, or um, we believe that we hold to belief must precede baptism. But it's called believer's baptism. And so that's kind of the idea I want you to see as a pattern. Um, even as we go, you need to get this too. Baptism follows belief. It's the first act of obedience. Like, it's what we should do. Now, again, as I'm preparing, I'm always mindful of, of you and your walks and, and who we are. What happens if you're sitting here today and you've believed and you've never been baptized? Like, then what's going to start to happen is you might start to feel kind of this, this conviction of, okay, what do I do with this right now? We're going to come to that at the very, very end. So just hold on. Don't disqualify yourself. Belief is of, a, is of utmost importance. Baptism is just incredibly important. But if you believe, you are His. 
but we will want to follow through with baptism. I'm going to hopefully hear that here in this one right here. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 31 through 34. In Acts chapter 16, verses 31 through 34. And they said, Believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Isn't that wonderful? You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. I love this last part that we would totally skip over. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Do you know what he rejoices the most over? That he believed in God. You just got to hold on to that, okay? All right, now I want to go back. What do we see in this particular part? Number one, the message, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Like there, that's the message that everybody needs. You go to Walmart, you go to, um, to Lebanon, you go to, to Russellville, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. So belief saves us, not baptism. But look at that. Those who believe are baptized Here's what I wrote. It is the expression of our salvation. I think that that's something to think about. Our baptism is an outward expression of our salvation. Y'all, it's an overwhelming act. Whenever the pastor is marrying somebody and like the wedding is going on and the pastor's standing here and he's got, he's got the bride, I'm sorry, he's got the bride, and he's got the groom. What does he tell the groom that the groom has been waiting on for the whole time? You may now kiss your bride. Right, It's that final overwhelming act. And you know why the pastor has to say it? Because if the pastor didn't say it, the groom's going to do it anyway. So he's got to authorize it. He's got to say, this, this is your next step. And it's an overwhelming act that everybody's waiting on. Everybody claps and rejoices and there's fullness of joy. That overwhelming act for the believer is baptism. Like it's a sweet moment whenever you have it and you realize this is what I was waiting on. Look at Romans chapter 6. This one's a little bit longer explanation, but I think it's really important. So in Romans chapter 6, because this is getting into why do, we, why do we dunk and go down and then why do we come back up and what all is, is happening right there. So this is the passage we go to a lot of the times. So Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. You also have to note um, that I deleted several passages just for sake of time as well. Um, so I can point you to some other ones if you need them. Romans 6, 3-5 through 5 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Okay, I hope I do this right. All right. It's just the truth. Our act of baptism is symbolic. And this points us to, it keeps talking about how we've been baptized into a death like His and how we've been buried with death and then raised to newness of life. That is that image whenever you are... You're, you know, you hold your nose and they have you cross your arms. The reason they have you hold your nose, by the way, is so that you don't get water up your nose. There's no, nothing special about that. And if the pastor holds your nose, he's either going to hurt you or not seal it tight enough. That's the secret of it, okay? But whenever they do that and they lay you back, you're going into your death. 
Like that's the, that, this is where we go to for that. You're being laid to death in that. In the Old Testament, think about this. Noah's flood, the waters were judgment and death. Jonah was thrown over the boat into the water and they closed over him and it was judgment and death. And you look at the Red Sea, the Israelites crossed through on dry ground and then the waters came crashing down on the Egyptians and that was their judgment and death. Those waters, whenever we go down into them and they close over us, that is our judgment and our death. We are identifying with him in his death. We're being laid to rest. Then as we come back up, that water is symbolically washing away our sins and we are being raised to newness of life. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's why we use that language being buried with Him in His death, being raised to newness of life. But that water, whenever you start thinking about what it can symbolize and, and how it works, and that's a, that's a big part of it. Okay. I don't want you to miss this. That as we are immersed, judgment and death cover us. Not only that, our Savior was laid to rest for our souls. Y'all, he became like us so that we might become like Him. He did not really technically have to be baptized. Jesus didn't. We needed Him to be baptized so that we could be more like Him. Like Just kind of keep that picture always in your mind. So in that act of immersion, we identify with Jesus, y'all, the Holy One who died and has been resurrected. He became like us so that we could become like Him, down into judgment and death, raised up through the washing of sins, and up to walk in the newness of life. Like That's where that symbolism comes from. Okay, I want to keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We're almost through our, our walkthrough passages and we're going to start pulling it all together and then answering some questions. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Try to cover, if you, if you move kind of like through the Scripture, moving left or right, you'll notice there's some trends in how the, the Lord has messaged for us an understanding of baptism even. It's really cool. Repent and be baptized, and belief precedes baptism. And then here's a symbol of it, and or the symbolism of it. And then in 1 Corinthians, we see the unity of it over and over again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what do we see here? Baptism unites believers. Regardless of rank, gender, nationality, baptism unifies all believers. I never really thought much about that. But you're going to see this happen again and again. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. I know we would say we're all one, but there's something in that act of baptism that, that's a symbolic act that we all partake in that unifies us. Galatians 3, 27. What is the common experience of all believers, y'all, that we believe? What should be an, another common experience that we were baptized? Galatians 3.27 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, that's a weird way of saying it. What's that? Actually, point two. Y'all, look again at the number one, the unity that we have here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Like, everybody who's baptized have put on Christ, right? Because belief is preceding. The other thing is this. It just reminds you that in our baptism, we are identifying with Christ. He did this. We do this. He did it for us. We do it for Him. And so whenever it says that as many as were baptized have put on Christ, that is a, it's a word play there. To be baptized is to, quote, put on Christ. It means it's, we become like Him. Like that's the idea that we go for. Or that, that we hold on to. 
And then the last one we're going to do is our scriptural walkthrough and then starting to answer some questions is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Regardless, regardless of church expression, denomination, nationality, all those who believe are all part of one body and one spirit which belongs to our one Lord who requires the same one faith and that is followed by the same one baptism. It is a unifying effect for all of us. We all have this experience as believers because baptism unifies all believers because it identifies all believers with Christ. Like that's that unification. Okay, so there's that's quick. That's walking through, but there's about 12 verses that as I am thinking through baptism and why I hold the conviction that I hold, these are the ones that, that I see over and over. And then I want to answer questions. Okay, so part two. If we pull it all together, what is baptism? I'm checking my time. Okay, baptism is this, like in plain English. Baptism is the act by which we identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection by being immersed in water and a death like His to be raised to newness of life. It is not essential to salvation, but it's incredibly important. It's an important act that all genuine believers should want to do because it is an act of obedience. Even Jesus was baptized. Okay, so what is baptism? It is an act by which we identify with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. And then we are raised to the newness of life. It's a picture of everything that we're going through right now. We have died to ourselves. We're walking in the newness of life, but we are going to walk in a full newness of life in our resurrection forever and ever. Okay? So if someone says, well, what is baptism? It, it's, it's the thing we do. It's an act. It's symbolic of, being buried, of dying, being buried, and resurrected because it reminds us that this is what our Lord has done for us. So having coffee, that's, that's what it comes down to. Why do we do it? This is, this is worth noting because it's an outward sign of the inward change that we have. It's an outward sign. It's something that we do outwardly because of something that's happened inwardly. Some people would refer to it as the start of the Christian life. Um, one theologian kept using that phrase over and over. I'm like, I get it, but I don't like it. Because the start of our Christian life is the moment that we believe. What he meant was it's the start of our public profession. So whenever we're baptized, we are saying to the world, I believe in Christ and I am going to walk in this way. Like it's a public thing that is a result of an inward change. I'm going to do it this way. Why do we slash I believe in immersion? Because I have good friends who do not believe in immersion. Love them. They're just wrong. Okay. But, but why do I believe in immersion? And, and here's, here's what I want to share with you. The historic New Testament practice of baptism was by immersion. They were dunking back then. Okay, so they have found, found baptisms or baptismals. Um, so it was the historic way. Um, sprinkling was not. Now, what if um, I'm dealing with someone and, and we walk through this, we walk through um, the gospel and they say, Oh, I believe I want to be saved. I'm like, okay, well, 
you know, one of the first things you're going to want to do is be baptized. I, I can't go underwater. I'm terrified of water. Like, and it's a real phobia. It's a real fear. Like, they can't do it. You know what? I want to pour a pitcher of water over their head. That's fine by me. I'll put them in a shower. Like, spring, okay. Or maybe because of their age, they can't actually get down into a baptism of, like, the real situation. That's okay, right? It's okay. The heart of baptism is what matters, but, but immersion is the historic practice. Number two, the word baptism itself. The word baptism in the original language was baptizo, which literally means to immerse. So whenever it says, I baptize, or the baptism of, like it literally meant immerse. Like that was the language of Scripture. So the word itself clarifies immersion for me. The next one, the language associated with Jesus' baptism like he came up out of the water, but also um, the eunuch. He says, here's water, why can't I be baptized? And so there was a body, so there, whenever you look at the language throughout Scripture for baptism, it seems to imply over and over again, immersion is the chief understanding even at that time. And then my fourth reason is symbolically the act of immersion best identifies with the purpose of baptism, our death, burial, and resurrection in identity with Jesus Christ. Okay, so historically, it's what was most commonly practiced. Um, the original language meant to immerse. And then the language around the situations we see in Scripture, it implies immersion. And the last one is symbolically, this is the main reason I hold on to it, just so you know, is because of how it reminds us that we identify that we must die to ourselves so that we can be raised for Him. Everybody good on that? I know I'm going, okay, fantastic. Who should be baptized? This is really important. You're going to want to make note of this one. Who should be baptized? All believers. I know it's not groundbreaking. You're like, why did I have to write that down? Because I just want you to get that. All believers should be baptized. So if you are a believer and you've not been baptized, hear me graciously, lovingly say you should. You should be baptized. A decade later, you should be baptized. Three days later, you should be baptized. If you, and I hope like through moving through this that you're hearing the biblical importance, but if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, then just come see me, come see Andy, come see um, a Christian who you like you trust and let them kind of walk, walk with you through this. But it is the first act of our outward obedience that, that you want to follow through. And if you haven't been baptized, then I have no doubt in there, you, it kind of feels like you're throttled sometimes because you know you're missing like that most important thing. And then so you do get baptized, and I just believe that God puts a special grace in that moment that you are really going to appreciate. Groom, you may now kiss your bride. Okay, how old should one be to be baptized? Like, when can my kid get baptized? Great question for a young church. I'm going to refer to my previous answer. Who should be baptized? All believers. Okay, I want to walk you through this. All believers of any age who can grasp that they are in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior who died for their sins, they believe they can be baptized. Okay, that's where I fall on this. So walk with me, please. So I say that children can be baptized as long as they understand why they are being baptized. I hold to the conviction that the problem with people walking away from their faith today is not because we baptized too early, but because we did not properly disciple them. Like that is something that I hold to. 
I think that we could baptize someone at the age of 33 and they walk away from their faith because they were not properly discipled. I think that they can be 13. So, parents then. I think that what you should consider when your child says that they believe Jesus is Lord and Savior is do they really get it, get this, to the best of their knowledge with faith like a child. Okay? I'm going to keep going. And do you see any fruit to the best of their age? You cannot expect a 7-year-old to grasp it in the way that a 14-year-old grasped it. And you cannot expect the fruit to look the same in a 7-year-old as a 14-year-old as a 38-year-old. A little bit further. Please hear me. Don't add hurdles for them to leap over when Christ has said, come to me. Okay? So, how old should they be? You parents are the chief disciple makers of your kids. You know if they get it, and you know if there's fruit. You also know if they don't get it, but they're just echoing what they've heard you to say. But I want to encourage you to be hopeful and excited and joyful as they are talking about the gospel and believing in Jesus Christ. But I want you to be careful too, okay? Just as careful as you'd be with anybody else. Like if I'm talking to Chas and she says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is my Savior, and then she goes and lives totally different, I don't see any fruit, then I would question my child in much the same way. Okay? Don't let age be the disqualifier. Let the fruit and the genuine expression of faith be in disciple your kids. Therefore, some churches have some principles in place in which they will not baptize kids under a certain age. I do understand their concerns. I do respect their positions, just as I hope they understand and respect mine as well. Can a young child come to Christ? Most absolutely. I can't deny it. Who can baptize? This one's fun for me. I got to check my time. Trying to be mindful with y'all. because Okay, who can baptize? Typically, baptisms are done by the elders or the pastors of a church. Y'all church or search scripture. It does not relegate that or elevate that to the position or to the role of an elder or a pastor. That's going to make us pretty radical in that understanding. But scripture never clarifies who can baptize someone. In fact, Jesus sends out his disciples and by extension us to go make disciples of the nations, teaching everyone and baptizing them. Now, do I think it's healthy for, to be the elder or the pastor? I do, because your elders and pastors are hopefully walking in a godly way. They understand the full um, expression of baptism. They, they're, they're godly men, so you trust them, and they can fulfill that role. However, we all are to go, all to go make disciples, and all to baptize. If we're going to take the whole Great Commission, you've got to take the whole Great Commission. You can't just say you get to go and make disciples. Okay, but I do think it's healthy for the pastor or the elder to be the one who does it. Healthy is my word there. Therefore, if a child, if I have a child that wants to be baptized, and if he has a dad who is a professing believer, a genuinely professing believer, bears the fruit of repentance and all that, then I am okay with that dad baptizing his son and daughter. What a joy for that father to baptize your own child into the family of God. What a great joy and honor. I'm okay with that. So parents, or just, I'm sorry, church, some guidance on this. Four things. The one baptizing must be a believer. You can't have an unbeliever baptizing a believer. Number two, I believe it should be done in the presence of others. Well, what if they 
get saved and they want to be baptized in their bathtub upstairs. Okay, can they wait like for three more days to do it in the presence of the church and fellow believers? Um, if they can't, then I don't know what you do with it there. I'm not going to lie. Number three, I believe the pastor or elder should be present, I really do, to both equip and support the dad should he need any help. What if there's not a dad in the picture and it's a mom and the mom's okay? Like, you get what I'm saying. Like, the whole point is that the parents can be involved in the baptism. And four, I, I'm going to have five. I forgot to put the fifth one. I believe that there should be a clear understanding internally and a clear profession of faith externally as to what is happening. So as the act is going on, I believe that the, an understanding of what's going internally should also be echoed externally. Why are you being baptized? That's something that, that we would do here. Tell, tell us your story. Why, this is, why is this an important thing? My fifth thing is, whenever it comes to who can baptize, it kind of ties into where can someone be baptized? Bathtubs, swimming pools, lakes, creeks. It doesn't have to be in the confines of the church, but I think the church should be gathered. Um, we baptized in a horse trough, um, and we heated the water in a sink um, back there whenever we did it here. So, but let's just say that that um, I'm just going to use Chas. The Chas wanted to be baptized. She's been baptized, don't worry. Um, but she wants to be baptized. One of my first questions is, okay, um, it's really nice this season, not right now, but like, Gany, where do you want to be baptized? Like, I'm great going to a lake. I'm great going to a swimming pool. And if they say, I don't care, then we'll go get the horse drop. Okay? But I'm great with that. The Bible does not elevate baptism to an action that only the elders can do. But I think it's very healthy for the elders to be involved in that. All right. Everybody good? Two great questions that came up. Is there a biblical case for infant baptism? And I just want to highlight real quick that um, as regards to time, I'm doing better on time than all my others. So just pointing that out. Is there a biblical, and I'm further in my page count, is there, a biblical, is there a biblical case for infant baptism? Okay, great question. One that we've all got to, to talk about. Um, somebody text Chas and me the question, and Chas was like, same question right there. Um, so walk with me through this. Not child baptism, but infant baptism. So it's a common question that probably many of us wonder about. I also want to clarify that, that we are a Baptist congregation, and so we're a Protestant Congregation, there are other Protestant denominations um, like Lutheran and Presbyterian. Protestants have one view of infant baptism, um, and then Catholics who also practice infant baptism have another view. I'm going to stick with Protestant because it's kind of like the, the same camp and understanding of what baptism is accomplishing. Okay, If you have um, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and all of our members should have that, that he's got a great chapter on baptism, and he gets into um, the, the Catholic view of baptism and, and why they view it the way they do and what it actually means. And if you read it and you're like, I don't get it, then I'll sit down with you. It's one of the things that I tried to limit here. Okay, so in Acts chapter 16, verse 14 through 15, I don't think you'll have time to turn there, so maybe just jot them down, or again, I'll send you my notes. In Acts 16, verses 14 through 15, we hear about, quote, a woman named Lydia, Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And upon hearing the gospel, Scripture says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul after she was baptized and her whole household as well. 
in the same chapter of chapter 16, verse 31 through 34, we meet a jailer who hears the gospel and scripture says in verse 33, and he took the took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then you go on in 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. So the household baptisms are there. So all of them refer to household baptisms. This is one of the things that, that those who hold the infant baptism would look at. Look, the whole household was baptized. I want y'all just... Stop right here, okay? Because they were living in the moment of the church expanding. We look back, probably taking for granted that we have the whole canon of literature of, of scripture here. We have a greater scope and understanding now of the fullness of what God was doing in that moment. So I want us to be like, actually, I'm going to say, let's humbly acknowledge that this that I'm about to tell you probably makes a whole lot of sense, okay? that if we were back in the days of the ancient church, I and my family, and we've just heard this great and glorious gospel by which we can be saved eternally, why would I not want my entire household to be baptized, including my baby? Right? That would make sense to me. If I'm going to raise them in accordance with Scripture and according to Christian standards, and I'm going to raise them as a Christian, then why not go ahead and baptize them? Humbly speaking, that would have made total sense to me. Or y'all, y'all get that? Like, I'm... But I want to disqualify it. As the gospel is spreading and eternity is shifting, I would want my infant to be baptized as well. You and I sit here today, though having seen all the other verses, that God has moved men to write for our equipping. And we can say, yeah, but it wasn't happening that way everywhere. right? But we have these instances where it was. Though it says, so here's my, here's my caution for me. And you're going to hear me at the end, I hope, be very open um, and gracious. With that said, I still hold to believers' baptism for a few reasons, for a couple of reasons. One, though it says their household was baptized, we are not given any indication that infants were even in that home. So if the Massengale household were to be fully baptized today, we do not have any babies. Right. Okay, no infants in the house. Okay. So therefore, each one of those household instances we see, we actually don't know if there were infants there or not. There's a presumption that it could be there. I would say also, and this is very important, the biblical pattern that I do see throughout the New Testament is language that more clearly and heavily reflects believers' baptism. That is, regardless of age, those who believe are those who are then baptized. Okay? They also look at Colossians. Go to Colossians real quick. I want you to see this one. And I'm going to... Summarize the best I can. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is a main passage that they would look at for infant baptism. And then I just want us to reflect again. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says, In Him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the old body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So this passage is actually going to help with infant baptism because in the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward sign of an inward devotion to God. The Israelites would have been, the Israelite male boys at um, eight days of age would have been circumcised. That's how you knew they were Israelites. That's how you showed your devotion to Christ as part of being, being part of the nation of Israel. Infants were circumcised. 
in this passage, it equates circumcision with baptism. And so Paul is kind of shifting here and saying, circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. So the outward expression has changed, but the inward devotion is still there. So where they would circumcise infants, um, boys, then now we are baptized. So therefore, if it's a sign of the covenant, we can have it then. We can baptize kids as well in keeping with the covenant. Good so far? Okay. All right, so that's, that's a lot of what's going on. They're both outward actions that reveal inward um, affection toward God. In this way, circumcision, which was a sign of the Old Testament covenant, is replaced in this passage by the New Testament covenant. And I know I'm really simplifying it. Okay, I would say for us, where circumcision brought infants in, us being those who would hold to immersion, um, where circumcision brought infants into the community of God's people, in Scripture, in the New Testament, we see that baptism is what brings us into the community of God's people. And it happens upon belief, not upon birth. Okay? So, I would say look at the biblical pattern again. See throughout Scripture that I do see believers' baptism. When you believe, you're baptized. When someone, just to clarify, believes in their heart and professes with their mouth, he or she is absolutely saved. Therefore, because of the conviction in that regard, I really do still struggle with infant baptism because a baby cannot believe. Like, it's, it comes down to the condition of belief for me. Okay? What I don't include in this conversation is I do believe that God is incredibly gracious and kind and understanding. Should a child pass away before they ever have the moment to truly believe or therefore be baptized, God is good and gracious and kind and they are in His presence immediately. Okay, that's a, it's a different conversation, but I feel like it should be brought in here. Please hear my heart on this one before I move on to the next question. Though they have, a, though they have strong convictions in regard to infant baptism, I just happen to graciously disagree, which is why this next part is incredi- incredibly important. Y'all notice I'm reading a lot. I want to be very like, um, I'm reading my own script in this. For me, it is not worth breaking fellowship or unity with our brothers or sisters in Christ. I don't. I don't think so. The litmus test of authentic Christianity is not believer's baptism or infant baptism, but Jesus Christ. Do they cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ as their only hope and stay? Is He their Savior? Then let there be peace and not dissension, but make sure the gospel is central. With that said, I'm, I, won't be, I would not join myself. As gracious as I am, I would not become a member at a church personally where infant baptism is practiced. However, I most definitely will befriend them. I could attend. I could learn from them. Y'all, many of my favorite theologians and pastors and some of the most brilliant minds to me are Presbyterians and Presbyterian theologians and pastors, and they hold to that, right? And I'm sitting there looking at these men going, man, you get so many things right. I think it's one of those where we've made that the issue instead of salvation being the issue. So I think we need to be very gracious and humble that both hold firm convictions that have scriptural support in in how they they see it coming about. Christ is the issue, not that. But at the same time, we visited a church, loved it, many aspects of it, but there was this one um, issue of baptism, and it's just, by my conviction, we couldn't do it. And so that's kind of where we are, but just want you to know, um, that's kind of our litmus is Jesus Christ over the mode and age at that point. Okay, 
Last one. What is 1 Peter chapter 3? So you got to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? All right. The person who sent me this question has every right to be confused on why it's worded the way that it is. I just need that to be known. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, right around, it's starting around verse 18 or so, you start reading different commentaries and they're like, this is a puzzling passage. There are so many interpretive issues with this passage. So it's a confusing passage. So I want to try to simplify it and then we're going to move out of the doctrine of baptism and rejoice in our Lord. What is 1 Peter? Here was the question. What does 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 mean? Because I know that we are not saved by baptism. But you know what it says in those passages? Baptism saves us. And so this person like says, it can't mean that because it doesn't mean it anywhere else. So like what's what's actually going on? So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, 22 says this. Like I'm really glad somebody asked this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hard part about the verse. You simplify it. Baptism, dot, 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 now saves you. So the question is, I know that faith alone is enough, but then why does it say that baptism saves us? What does it mean? Look at the fuller context. First Peter Starting actually verse 20, last, last um, three quarters of it, starts with when God's patience, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is full context here, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so the fuller context is actually talking about the floodwaters of Noah, right? And an even fuller context has a confusing verse about how Jesus went down into to preach to the, the angels who were enslaved because they left their proper place. Like there's weird things going on there. Okay, in Noah's day though, there's our context. In Noah's day, the floodwaters meant judgment and death. The vast majority of all creation was absolutely destroyed except for these eight people on the ark with those animals. The proper response, y'all just get this, of a holy God to man's wickedness is death and judgment. Like that's his proper response. That's what's going on. Yet God sustained Noah and his family. He brought them through death and judgment. All the filth of the world was washed away, but there was death and judgment in that moment except for in the ark of salvation. Okay? In baptism... I'm sorry, and knowing them are kept in this ark of salvation until they can walk into a new world in a new life. And that's what he's actually trying to parallel here is one possible scope for us to take. In baptism, the same thing happens. The waters close over us in death. We are judged. We are dead. Then we rise through the waters and as Noah and his family did and we are raised to newness. So there's that symbol of salvation. Okay? I would also, though, take a look at this. Another consideration with the emphasis actually being on the word baptism and is actually on Jesus and not the baptism itself. Why are we baptized? Because we believe. That's why I want to just get the full context. There is judgment, baptism which now saves you, and you keep reading the verse, and it's actually all through Jesus and for Jesus and by Jesus that any of this even happened. So our baptism is kind of that culminating point of, I've believed, I am baptized. So it's not the baptism itself, 
but it's that identification and our faith in Christ. That's what fully saves us. It's just expressed in our baptism. Okay, and then the, the last one that I would say with that is one thing, one more thing to remember is that Jesus was baptized. It's by his baptism that we are actually saved. He identified with us so that he could save us so that we could be like him and be with him forever and ever. So whenever it says baptism now saves us, it's it's few scopes and they all kind of come back to the same thing. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. It is our acceptance of that salvation is expressed in our baptism. But Jesus Christ is the one who precedes that baptism. He's the one who fulfills the baptism. It's all about him over and 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 over. Okay? Is that one good? Is that satisfactory? Okay. All right, conclusion. What do you do with all this? What in the world do you do with this before we sing? Are you a believer and have you been baptized? Two things then. If so, if you're a believer and you've been baptized, then reflect on the astounding truths and marvel yet again that He allowed you to believe and be baptized. Like He called you to His side. He came for us. Like, just rejoice in Him. If you're a believer and you have not been baptized, then I want you to reflect on these things and come talk to Andy or me or a friend so that we can walk you through those next steps. You know what? I don't think it's, what I think would be um, horrible is for someone to have believed and to have never been baptized. Rather than, man, what a great profession to have believed and then a decade later go, I've never been baptized and I need to do this now. What would that do for the saints and for the kids and for all others who are watching and say, oh my goodness, this is something worth noting. So if you believe, your next step should be baptism. And what if you aren't even a believer and you're listening to all this, you're like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about then I'm glad you're here. We'd love to talk more about salvation and the next step being baptism. But what I hope you all really leave here with, being professing believers, is take this because one day you will have coffee with someone and you're going to be talking to them about salvation and they're going to be coming to you with questions because you're the one who knows these things. And we are here as a church to help and equip but I hope you got some answers that kind of just give you a firmness of here's why we do what we do and here's how we're going to do it and, and here's where it's okay to be gracious and here's where it's not clarified. But you know what we all rejoice in? That our God came for us and made us His own. Like that's, that's what we're going to go with today. Baptism is a part of that. You know where you are, just see us if you need us. All right, let me pray for you all and then we will worship and go. Lord God, our great God, I ask that all hearts that are here believe. Lord, that's, that's the burden of the day. That's what, what keeps us up at night. It's what, what weighs on us. Is that matter of belief. So Lord, I pray that you be with us. Lord, teach us what it means to believe. And, and as believers, to Lord, may some of this, what needs to, take root. We're encouraged. We're strengthened. We're equipped by it. We're sanctified by it. But Lord, we are ready to go and make disciples. We're ready to fulfill the great command and mission you've given us. Lord, teach us what that means for us. Amen.